Welcome to episode 58 of Reading with Rory, the podcast where three friends discuss the 300 plus books on the Rory Gilmore reading list. I'm today's host, Sarah. I'm Erin. And I'm Liz. And today we have a special guest joining us, a longtime friend of the pod and big brother to two of its co-hosts, um, the one and only Matt Thomas. Welcome to Reading with Rory, Matt. Say Honored hello. to be here. Oh. Hello. Thank you. Welcome. Dream yes. come true. <laughs> It's about time we had a Thomas sibling on That's the podcast. That's right. That's right. We are thrilled to have Matt here. He, we asked him to join us for our discussion of one of his favorite books, Alexander Dumas, The Count of Monte Cristo. And so I searched and I searched, and I'm pretty sure that the so-called reference to this all-time classic adventure novel in Gilmore Girls is actually just a reference to the Monte Cristo sandwich. <laughs> Uh, Which I'm really? actually a big fan of. Yeah, so. Well, Luke says they're bad for you. Yeah. Well, but no, Luke keeps them on the menu. That's the thing. Mm. And that's like the joke is that like Lorelai's like, you always keep it on the menu even though no one orders it. And I wanted us to have a Monte Cristo sandwich here tonight with us while we have this conversation. But the Mulboons went out of business. <laughs> they used to have it at a little, what's that place down? Baker's in Normandy? Yeah. They used to have it at Baker's uh-huh, in Normandy. Uh-huh. It's true. Oh, the one just down the street here? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, essentially, for, for people who aren't aren't aware of the Monte Cristo sandwich, it's just essentially just like a grilled cheese with like ham and jelly and stuff, right? Isn't there like a jelly? Oh, no, they fry it? A lot of like powdered sugar. It's fried. It's deep yeah, fried. It's, like, yeah, it's deep fried, but there's also like Whoever a jam. Whoever Luke and... is, it's not healthy. <laughs> He's correct. Well, they also make a joke about the Monte Cristo sandwich in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, actually, oh, yeah. because the captain who cannot cook makes a Monte Cristo sandwich and gives it to Boyle. He's like, oh my gosh, it's perfect. And so it's this whole thing about how the captain made a perfect Monte Cristo sandwich. <laughs> I mean, if you guys do a Brooklyn Nine-Nine podcast. You're on, you're on. All right, all right. We'll, we'll... I do have to say this. Like, for not knowing who Luke is, you're certainly channeling him with your backwards baseball. <laughs> it's so true. It's giving off very strong Luke so, vibes. That's pretty I amazing. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. So, um, now as much as I do like Gilmore Girls and I like the Monte Cristo sandwich, that is not a reference to the novel The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Once again, I have a bone to pick with the creator of this list, but... I guess that's beside the point because here we are, fifty-eight episodes in. So. Also, it'd be very surprising if a list like this did not have the count of, the count of Monte Cristo on it. I, know I feel true. like this would be, is kind of a given. That's a classic. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but speaking of sandwiches, let's let's tell our listeners what we're eating. So we are um, we're having kind of a communal feast tonight. I wanted to make it kind of a theme night, so I'm contributing uh, some brie. And don't worry, like. It's maybe from France, so... French brie. <laughs> French brie, so... With your Breton crackers. My Breton crackers, oh, which mm-hmm. um, are not from France, but Breton is, like, it's yeah. it's French adjacent, right? From, sure. Yeah, yeah. And the brie was individually wrapped. Let's give a shout out yeah, to that. Yeah, to that. It's very COVID safe, yeah. so we can all have our take-home brie. And, <laughs> and then we chase that down with some baked goods. Oh, yeah. We've Lots got We've goods. got an array. What are you guys eating? Um, well, there's some cake de flor. Wait, de flor. De flor. Yeah. Cake de flor. We're staying on theme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's some French cake. <laughs> I had a slice of that a little earlier, but I'm still not full, so now I can have a cupcake. Yeah. Matt. <laughs> so cupcakes. Matt brought some so cupcakes. Yeah. yeah. We've got some Utah delicacies going. Yeah. And it's and Aaron, of course. Well, her- I would I would like to point out that I am surrounded by Diet Coke. A family she's of just, Diet she's Coke. Surrounded people, by Thomas's. Even yeah. though Sarah is drinking water right now and being very healthy. <laughs> but I in line with tradition, brought my Diet A&W. <laughs> it's not French at all. Yes. It is not at all French, but neither is Diet Coke. So, you That's know fair. what? That is fair. I, I'm sure. 
<laughs> All right. That's a good feast. Yeah, it is. It's good. Sorry, it's not all French. Sarah. It's not all French. I mean, I was like, just thinking. I was like, could we get some like Napoleons? Because those are like mm, those are good. yummy, that would, that, some, and that some yummy pastries, and that does fit. We're talking yeah. about Napoleon here, but I was watching the French Open before. So I was listening to some French songs. I was. I was listening to. So some we're songs ready. We're ready for. Yeah, some we've got French. this. I'm yeah. glad the book's in English. <laughs> yeah, close mm-hmm. enough. Me too. Close enough. Um, but before we get there, let's do our favorite news segment. Take that, Jeff Bezos, where Erin tells us which independent bookstore she found. That's right. Uh, so this one, I think we've already talked about this one, but this one came from Tim's Used Books in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Have we talked oh, about yeah, this we one? talked about Provincetown. Yeah, so all the way at the tip of Cape Cod, uh, cute little town. So this comes from the same place. I only got a couple, actually, from Tim's Used Books. But, but they were um, in the seas. Yes, but they... <laughs> <laughs> Very true. They were in the seas, which probably helped because they you were right close go together. To that section in every and, um, well, I mean, again, like some of these books you can buy, you can probably find the Count of Monte Cristo. And I got the unabridged version because I wanted to own the unabridged version. And we've had a whole discussion, and oh, probably we will, we will have, have a, a discussion, discussion about this yeah. about unabridged versus um, abridged. But too much room on the bookshelf. But you can probably find the Count of Monte Cristo in most independent used I bookstores. So. I would think mm-hmm. the thing that makes some of these stores hard though is they don't always categorize their books and so sometimes they're just like thrown in random places in the store and you can't figure out yeah yeah, you have to hunt for them makes it fun well sometimes that's fun sometimes if you don't have a lot of time or if you're looking for literally one book (laughs) then it is the needle in the haystack concept and that can get a little bit old but um Mm. but it is always fun when you find one but i do think it's all it is also kind of part of the charm right yeah yeah Mm -hmm. hopefully there's like some cats wandering around often Mm -hmm. yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) all right so as Aaron mentioned, you can find this book in almost any bookstore because it is one of the most popular and beloved novels of, yeah, all time. I mean, we've uh, we've only had it with us for 176 years, but I think it, it's cracked that echelon, right? So um, it was certainly the most popular novel in Europe in the years immediately after its publication, and it's never been out of print in any of the many languages in which it's been published. Um, it was originally published as a serial in 18 parts, um, in the French newspaper Journal des Debats. You better pronounce this right, I Sarah. Get it. <laughs> I have Google Translate open in a tab. <laughs> the pressure's on. The pressure is the on. Pressure's There's on. a lot of French names in here, but I think we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. It was Journal des Debats. Um, which, uh, so it was originally uh, published, started beginning in 1844. So you want to think of it kind of like the coolest like water cooler TV show of the 19th century, right? This was... Like something that everyone was reading and like anxiously anticipating and talking about, and um, it also almost in conjunction with its serial publication in this newspaper, it it was then put into a novel, also in eighteen parts, and so it was. So you could buy the box set <laughs> and binge the whole. But season. it was like there were yeah yeah, yeah. right that's how yeah I, that's how I binge like my reading. <laughs> yeah. But like there were like pirated versions in like other countries. Like this was kind of like the cool. Like the cool sensation sweeping sweeping the continent, which I um, I can imagine. Something interesting um, and important worth noting is that Dumas very likely wrote it with a collaborator, a man named Auguste Maquet, who Dumas worked with on many projects, um, but has largely gone uncredited um, until very recently. They made a movie about this friendship. Um, which you watched. Which I did watch. <laughs> Liz, Liz did not join me. She's like, that's all on you. <laughs> It was called like Le Tour Le Tour Dumas. I'm gonna read the book. (laughs) 
hey, I do my research, you guys. Anyways. Um, I'm Gerard A. Perdue, so it wasn't that interesting of a movie. You no, can skip it. it. But I do think that um, it's an interesting thing to note, right? Like, Dumas was very famous, very extravagant, like, quite the bon vivant, right? Like, he um, was just... Like, his life kind of resembled some of these stories that he was writing. And um, he kind of took up all the air in the room and was definitely to be be considered more of the genius while his partner, McKay, was this workhorse and it said he didn't really have like the same gifts or excesses that Dumas had. So they made for this kind of interesting partnership and I've been thinking about that in the sense of like who history remembers, right? And well, now, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> like, and not the quiet guy who comes up with the ideas. Yeah, not the quiet guy who comes yeah. up with the ideas and does the, does the work. The other guys yeah. who tells your it story, does kind right? of, Yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Who, and who does Trump have behind the scenes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Three. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can leave that in. <laughs> oh my. All right, so for those who may not be acquainted with the story, uh, please note we will very likely be spoiling some major stuff as we discuss this book. Um, because let's face it, it's pretty much all plot. So be warned, spoilers ahead. Um, but as far as general synopsis goes, uh, here is a lovely one from our friends at Wikipedia, slightly modified by me, as you'll see. Um, so the story takes place in France, Italy, and the islands in the Mediterranean during the historical events of 1815 through 1839. Um, the historical setting is a fundamental element of the book, which is an adventure story that's primarily concerned with themes of hope, justice, vengeance, mercy, and forgiveness. Um, but essentially, here's, here's breaking down the plot. Before he can marry his fiancée, Mercedes, Edmond Dantes, first mate of the Ferron, is falsely accused of treason, arrested, and imprisoned without trial in the Chateau d'If, which is a grim island fortress off Marseille. Um, That's well, a real place. It is a real place. Lots of these places are real, and, and these like, people too. Um, a fellow prisoner, Abe Faria, real. Uh, that was another thing I learned. Uh, cor- really? I didn't know that that was a real character, yeah. or a real person. He's based on a real person, a real, a real Abe Faria who was an Italian priest, who was... Who's probably in, friends with McKay. Who was in, who was in prison. Huh. Um, yeah. So yeah, and and had kind of a. <laughs> I was gonna say for not watching that documentary or that show, you sure seem to know a lot. Yeah, she about actually McKay. just pulled that out of nowhere. That wasn't <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Don't trust Liz. Yes, um, but I did find that interesting that he was actually based on a, a very real person of the same name with a really similar background. Hmm. Um, so fellow prisoner Abi Faria correctly deduces that his jealous rival Fernand Mondengo. And his envious crewmate, Danglar, and a double-dealing magistrate, de Villefort, turned him in. So Farah inspires his escape and guides him to a fortune in treasure. As the powerful and mysterious Count of Monte Cristo, he arrives from the Orient to enter the fashionable Parisian world of the 1830s and avenge himself on the men who conspired to destroy him. His plans have devastating consequences for both the innocent and the guilty. Or, as the... Uh, the synopsis I wrote. So, if you thought Tiger King was too much, France's hottest club is Monte Cristo. It has everything. Solitary confinement, Italian bandits, horses wearing diamonds, poison, beloved mute grandfathers, runaway lesbians, public executions, hoodwinked telegraph operators, faking your own death, hollowed out emeralds filled with hash and opium, and that thing when the Greek princess you bought out of slavery conveniently falls in love with you. Oh, well done. Much better. Isn't John Mulaney kind of the Stefan's behind-the-scenes guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the McKay. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. Well, 
well done, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes, I, was... I mean, well, the way to point out all the weird quirks of the book <laughs> that just like came out of nowhere at every turn. That's how he kept him reading, I it's guess. It's so right? excessive, right? And that's what Dumas was famous for, was just kind of like this exuberance, right? Just this so over the top and it's so much. And like, especially, and we'll go into this, the unabridged version, it's like, it goes into so much detail about the like opulent lives they're living and every tiny problem and we'll talk about why but like too much detail is shared and and it's it's a little bit silly (laughs) so it was i do want to read this um a little snippet from this article i found um in the paris review that was written by Umberto Eco, or Eco, my apologies, I'm not up on my Italian, but um, this is a man that translated. Um, He did a translation of this, Uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but... So he says, The Count of Monte Cristo is one of the most exciting novels ever written, and on the other hand is one of the most badly written novels of all time in (laughs) in any literature. The book is full of holes, shameless in repeating the same adjective from one line to the next, incontinent in the accumulation of these same adjectives, capable of opening a sententious digression without managing to close it because the syntax cannot hold up, and panting along in this way for 20 lines. In its mechanical and clumsy in its portrayal of feelings, the characters either quiver or turn pale, or they wipe away large drops of sweat that run down their brow. They gabble with a voice that no longer has anything human about it. They rise convulsively from a chair and fall back into it, while the author takes care, obsessively, always, to repeat that the chair onto which they collapsed again was the same one on which they were sitting a second before. We are I don't remember that. Okay. <laughs> we are all we are all well aware. We are well aware why Dumas did this. Not because he could not write. The Three Musketeers is slimmer, faster paced, perhaps to the detriment of psychological development, but rattles along wonderfully. Dumas wrote that way for financial reasons. He was paid a certain amount per line and had to spin things out. Not to mention the need, common to all serialized novels to help inattentive readers catch up on the previous episode, to obsessively repeat things that were already known. So a character may recount an event on page 100, but on page 105, he meets another character and tells him exactly the same story. And in the first three chapters, you should you should see how often Edmond Dante, Edmond Dantes tells everyone who will listen that he means to marry and that he's happy. Fourteen years in the Chateau d'If are still not enough for that sniveling wimp like him. Which is like, thanks. Hey. <laughs> um, but I do think he points out an interesting thing, right? Just like the nature of how it had to be written. But let's talk about how we liked it. Um, going around, tell me if you've read it before, how did it hold up compared to your first reading, your prior experience with the novel, and how, yeah, I wanna hear how you felt about it, Liz. So, I'd read it before. I read it, I wanna say it's like right out of high school, probably, I don't know, like a while ago, decades ago. Okay. And I liked it. I remember it being like, oh, that's such an intense revenge plot. What if, like, I just, and I read the abridged version then because. Someone gave me the abridged version and told me it was their favorite book, so that's the one I read. And then, I mean, I really liked it. I thought it was very plot-driven and interesting. This time as I read it, I liked it, but I didn't really like it. It was a page-turner. I read it really fast, Mm -hmm. and I was not as, like, impressed with his revenge, I guess. Maybe... I am really? watched. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe I've watched a lot of TV more. Maybe I've grown more like jaded and like nothing on Walter White. Yeah, maybe I just I'm like, well, I mean, sure, but I'm like, that's a lot of coincidences to happen, and it really wasn't. I mean, I guess I just didn't see it as like it didn't hold up in my memory. I guess as being as 
involved as I remember it being. And it was pretty involved. I was I, like, it's still... I know, it's not saying it's not involved. I just remember it being a lot more. And so then I'm like, when is the... when is, Like, I thought he destroyed, like, the lives of everyone around them, and he didn't, right? So I guess I just um, wasn't disappointed. I liked it. It was a good read. I'd probably give it a four. But um, I... Anyone who reads the unabridged version, like, well done. That's great. Yeah. I just don't see the need for that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh-huh. Matt, what do you think? Okay, so semi-long version. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a house of Thomas's, <laughs> and it's a book-loving family. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like our books. And, uh, and when I got to high school, and I was, I still am the oldest Thomas, um, <laughs> Typical high schooler, I decided to rebel against what I had been indoctrinated with, and and that was reading, reading, <laughs> and took pride in the fact that I made it through high school without ever having to read a book and college and just it hurts me when you a, say this. Had a big no. long stretch of my life where I'm like, I, I don't like, I don't want to read. I'm out on reading. So sometime post, well, so then I grew up. And love to read nonfiction and things like that, but I was still cool for the Count of Monte Cristos of the world for some reason. So, mm-hmm. sometime maybe in the same timeline as when you read it, mm-hmm. I think I was trying to think about. It, I think like in '97 or '98, mm-hmm. um, somebody recommended the book. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was the other way around. Yeah. But I read the Count of Monte Cristo and loved it. Like it completely opened my eyes to this world of literature that I'm like, okay, I'm not too cool for this. This is fun to read and like, I'm look in. Look at this guy. Get him. <laughs> now, it was the abridged version uh-huh. and, uh, but I did come away, like, this was my favorite book I've ever read in the moment. Uh-huh. I haven't read it since, but it always had this kind of romantic place in my, you know. It got you back into books. It got me back into books. Yeah. Which And so now, in preparation for this podcast, I decided I'm going full unabridged <laughs> and reread that and I'm with Liz. Like, it, it, didn't hold up to the to the mantle that I had in my head, and the unabridged was a tough read. It I don't is know a tough if, read. If it's the if it's my ADD or if it's the French names that I couldn't keep track of, but I'm like, there's too many storylines going on. I can't figure out who all these people are, and um, and it wasn't as gripping as you my first it. read. Mm-hmm. Still liked it. Still had a lot of cool things, yeah. but it wasn't inspirational or um, a fun read necessarily. So like I'm going abridged 4.6, yeah. unabridged 3.2. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Interesting yeah. that it didn't hold up either. Enough. Okay, I'm going to hold up enough. Yeah. I've just, I've read a lot of books since that I'm like, well, that's better. But this has a special place in my heart because it like. Yeah, taught. maybe that's it, right? Like the so. more exposure. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And you grow up, right? Like, it's... Yeah, anyway, we'll get there. Erin. Well, I think it's very interesting to, to... I don't know. I mean, maybe we can say this for later. But, I, like, I think it's very interesting to think about, like, the impressions you have when you first read something versus when you go back and reread something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's very... Um, like, some things hold up really well, some things don't. But that first time is still so influential. And I think one of the reasons why this book is so influential is, like... When we talk about some of the writers that existed in this same time period, you think about like Tolstoy, right? Like when we talk about Anna Karenina mm-hmm. and some of the, the writers here Hugo. in this time period. Yeah, like some of these stories were very 
new, like the writing style was new and different and, and of such a quality that, I mean, and, you know, even Dickens too, right? Like Dickens was a serial author and he wrote, you know, serial publications. So, um, but the stories were very captivating. And I think this story holds up well because it is an interesting story. And some of the things that come out of this, right? Love, revenge, um, treasure hunting, right? There's all this like stuff in there that can still grab your attention. So, um, you know, I mean, yeah, like, like I said earlier, I bought the unabridged version because I wanted to own the unabridged version. But I had no intention of reading the unabridged version. <laughs> My intention was, okay, when they get to something that's like long and descriptive, just like move right past that on to like something else. Um, which I think sometimes is perfectly appropriate for some of these books. But I think, so when I grew up, like I had not, I did not read this earlier at any point of my in my life but i did read like the play version i think when i was in like junior high or something the play version that that because dumas adapted it into a play himself um i actually don't have any idea okay um was it like a scope magazine play (laughs) no i think it was (laughs) i read those with my students they're like let's read frankenstein and it's like a two-page play it was not that it It was not that (laughs) um but we read it because um i think kingsbury hall maybe here in salt lake city was putting on a production of it. And so we we read it like in junior high and then did like a field trip to the theater to go see it in the theater. Okay. And um, and I actually was going to look this up because I don't remember, when did the movie come out? Um, 2002. Okay, then it was not, it, it was really The Jim Caviezel? Yeah. yeah. Um, are we going to go there? Oh, we're going to go there. Yeah, we're going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll go there. <laughs> so, so this, this would have been pre-movie, but, um, but I, yeah, so seeing the play, like reading the play and seeing the play was very cool and because again all those same elements filter through right mm-hmm. and it's it's cut way down so the plot is c- drastically condensed into um this very short Did time it have period a, a emerald full of drugs no it sure oh. didn't <laughs> just the yeah the emerald full of drugs does not <laughs> that didn't make persist in, yeah. in the retelling of the story many times it's a bummer but anyway so i think i think that for the sheer influence of the story alone right i mean like we were talking about earlier there is a sandwich I don't know if the sandwich is named after this book is. or not. I think it is. Yeah. But there is... Why? Well, probably because it's so decadent, right? Like, oh. Who knows? I, I don't reason. know. Yeah. It's a good okay. question. It's a good logic. I mean, I like why, what, else, <laughs> what else would it be named for? I don't know, right? The like, island? There but, is a real island. But why would you name layers it? inside the sand. <laughs> it's not like he's a layered character. He's really not. But yeah. okay, go ahead. Anyway, so I think I give the story like a 4.5 or give the book a 4.5 because I think... How can you give it any any less than that? Yeah, that's fair. It's um, it's definitely has staying power for sure. Mm-hmm. I so my first exposure, um, and this is going to date me as probably. We all know how old you are. I, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm the youngest one here, shall we say? And my that's first true. exposure to this story was on an episode of Wishbone. <laughs> <laughs> I not expect that. <laughs> and you guys, it was a good episode of Wishbone. <laughs> like, it draws you in. Like, that dog plays Monte Cristo so effectively. That's what we needed a clip of. A clip I of know. I actually have it. I actually have it pulled up if you guys want to see. Um, but it's... No. All right. It weirds me out. <laughs> we can't. Um, I mean, yeah. I've seen, I've seen more Gilmore Girls than I have Wishbone. So. <laughs> Are you familiar with the concept, though? Yeah. I know the theme song. Um, the, well, it's a catchy theme song. Well, it was a PBS show. For our listeners that don't know, it was a PBS show. 
<laughs> that had a, and it was in the 90s, and it had a dog that it was like, had this like teenage, like preteen teenage boy and like his group of friends, and he has like a little Jack Russell Terrier, and they get into like hijinks and scrapes, and this Jack Russell Terrier compares their hijinks and scrapes to classic literature as as well as dogs do, you yeah. know. So yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> so, he tells the story. So he tells. Right? So it like cuts back and forth between like modern day life and this classic novel, and and the dog is plays the protagonist in these reproductions of the novel. So it's and he talks and he, and he talks. Yes, Liz finds it very offensive, but it. it well, <laughs> we all know how Liz feels about talking animals, so not I mean, do it. Well, what's funny is he doesn't talk. It's just kind of like his inner monologue. He just talks as the book. Like, well, no, it's like no, he does talk as the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like his mouth is moving like he's talking. It's like your hearing is. So thoughts. back to counting money. <laughs> So that was my first experience, and it really did grab me. I remember watching that was always my favorite episode. I'd be super stoked when that one came on, right? So um, multiple viewings. <laughs> I love that show. I know. And um, and so in high school, I read the abridged ver- abridged version and loved it so much. Like same like these guys, right? Like it just pulls you in. It's so. It's so complex and intricate and just all of these characters intersect in such like um compelling ways or at least compelling to me as a high schooler and then I, you know I think post-college I fancied myself like I don't know it was for some real stupid reason I just was like I didn't have a reason like I need to reread this book for a podcast I just was like I'm gonna read the unabridged version because I'm pretentious so I <laughs> decided you were trying to prove something I, I was trying to prove something to someone I guess I don't know mm-hmm. so I read the unabridged version in um I don't know probably like 10 or 12 years ago and it was you know my takeaway from that was like well that was a waste of time just read the abridged version <laughs> And so for it's going to be the takeaway of the whole thing. It is. It is. But I, 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 I did find one compelling argument in favor of the long version. But um, and I, there are a lot of people that do say like it makes it richer, it makes it more whatever. I don't know. But for me, it the writing is so redundant, and there's not a lot of like character. So for this reread, I did the abridged again, um, and. I, 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 it's a, it's a broken record. I also was like, eh, it's not quite as like amazing as I remember it on the first read. And I had hoped that enough time had passed since I had read it, that it would be like a fun revisiting and like it would be, but it wasn't, it didn't quite have that same zest the first Maybe time. Maybe once you know it. what happens in it, it's Maybe. like harder yeah. to get like But I also was like, it, how does it stay? It's a class. It's, it's something that I do think people reread. Like, so I just wonder how other, mm-hmm. how other listeners feel about it on multiple rereads. Cause yeah, I don't know that it holds up on lots of rereads because. Once you realize he doesn't hook up with Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, you're like, come back to Mercedes. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, that is, that is a, that is a letdown. Um, you, you shipped them, huh? Interesting. <laughs> interesting it's true it's true so I, I guess on this third read I would give it still probably like on the whole I'd give it around like a 4.2 because I do think that like there is like um there is just something mythic about it right that like is sort of undeniable and I think that it just still makes it fun and it is still readable it's like it is such like the 19th century version of like 
just an airport bestseller kind of a thing, right? And you just, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of psychological depth, but... Just a good John Grisham book from the 1830s. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Yeah. Dan Brown. Yeah. Dan Brown and Alexander Dumas. <laughs> well, I do think so. I don't think, I mean, people compared him and said he was this genius, like... Like he was so, like on in the same league as like Hugo and Tolstoy and stuff, and I don't know that he was. I think he could spin a good yarn. Obviously, he had the sense for flair and the sense for melodrama, but like he he'd be a good showrunner now. Yeah, but yeah, he he mm-hmm. he, uh, he didn't necessarily. I don't think his gifts were in like like necessarily actual writing or like drawing real human characters, right? It's it's something bigger, it's something different, which I don't think is anything less valuable, but it's just not, it doesn't have as much, um, as much value on a reread, I think. So yeah, um, but I did, so I'm sorry, Liz, I am gonna revisit Umberto Eco one more time, and I know- You we, can, it's fine, I was just being funny. <laughs> um, because he had some interesting things to say as far as like, cause he, he's like, oh cool, you want me to, to translate this, finally, like, this is a chance to take what is this overwritten, like, get, let's let's trim down some of all this excess and just kind of streamline it and make it... Like, I also think maybe the translation is also another reason that we kind of take yeah. issue is that, I'd love like, to read it in the depending French, on who, yeah. who translates it, you, it changes the story and what's happening and how it's written and if we're... So, uh, hats off to Umberto. Well, no. So, well, what, so what do you, you... I didn't quite get there. So. <laughs> still on. I'm just, it's still on. <laughs> Um, I was trying to say not, I have no hard feelings. No hard feelings me. for Umberto. Okay, mm-hmm. so this was his thoughts as far as like as he was kind of getting through the process, what he was learning is like that it wasn't necessarily he wasn't necessarily improving on anything. And he said, if the Count of Monte Cristo were condensed, if the convic- if the conviction, the escape, the discovery of the treasure, the reappearance in Paris, the vendetta, or rather chain of vendettas, had all happened within two or three hundred pages, would the novel still have an effect? Would it pull us along even in those parts where the tension makes us skip pages and descriptions? We skip them, but we know they are there. There, we're sped up subjectively, but knowing that the narrative time is objectively dilated, which is like, okay, but Aaron's essentially, like, skipping pages. yeah, exactly, like skip, right, pages, skip, skip, pages. skip. Where here's this whole lengthy thing where you're like teaching the Baron de Pinay about how to do hash. <laughs> Hundreds of pages. Hold on, I'm not done. So, uh, so it says, it turns out that the horrible stylistic excesses are indeed, quote, padding, but the padding has a structural value. Like the graphite rods in nuclear reactors, it slows down the pace to make our expectations more excruciating, our predictions more reckless. Dumas' novel is a machine that prolongs the agony where what counts is not the quality of the death throws, but their duration. He plays the long game. Yeah, Yeah, he knows. Right? Well, and I think, and if you think about it too, like if you're writing from a serial perspective, right, you kind of have to do that because you have to give people a reason to come back next week and to be looking forward to it next week. And so you have to write it in such a way that everything is drawing out. And there's a clipping. Again, right? Like, I mean, compare him to Shonda Rhimes, like whoever you want, like insert (laughs) person Uh here. That's interesting, right? Like, and I, I did think that the comparison to a fuel rod and a nuclear reactor was a particularly vivid one, right? Like, it's just cooling things off before things explode prematurely kind of a thing. Because it is, yeah, I don't know. But there there are parts where I do think he just, and I mean, I don't know. I feel like we're kind of being a little hard on him, right? But as far as... I mean, it's a fun read. I don't want to be hard on him. It was... He got some big numbers. 
Yeah, I don't think the story is suffering in terms of its legacy. Well, and to the translation piece, too, what's interesting is you think about, again, if you go back to something like Anna Karenina, right, like the translation, there have been bad translations of Anna Karenina. There have also been good translations of Anna Karenina. So I think the translation, you know, and I don't know, are there different translations of the Oh, there's tons. I would have to imagine that there would be. There's tons, But, you know, I'm sure that that... I even compared, so this was, this was a... this is nerdy that I'm even that I'm admitting to doing this. So I have an audio version of the unabridged version, right? So, some because sometimes that I like to do with audiobooks is it's like a bedtime story, right? So stories I've read before, I'll just like turn on and it'll just put me to sleep. So I have. Um, That's what I use reading with Rory podcast. <laughs> That's what I use. <laughs> okay. Cillian Murphy on calm. Thanks. <laughs> I mean thank that you. as a compliment. Like it's just thank you, guest. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Sleep. I appreciate it. Um, so, you it. so I so I have so I do in addition to already having read it before I also did I did get the audio version so in for this reread I was comparing the audio that I have to the unabridged version that I have and they're different translations and it's a really interesting thing to do right like it's communicating the same thing but it's different words and it's just a little more economical in some sense and like what how it chooses so I do think you are a nerd that is nerdy. It's... But but that's a good I nerdy tidbit. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Very apropos. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I do think that a good a good translation makes makes a big difference. I did try and get my friend Mike, who is, speaks French very well and and uh, fluently, to I just told him on Tuesday, I'm like, all right, do me a favor, read the unabridged in the original French. Get back to me in a couple days. Tell me what you think. <laughs> And he didn't do it? Weird he didn't do it. Mike. <laughs> if you're listening to this, yeah. Mike. He's a friend of the pod. He is listening to this. I'm disappointed, Mike. Note that. Note that. Another <laughs> reason to add to your feud. Yeah, there we have go. a few. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, well, were there parts that you guys like particularly liked? Different passages? Like different threads? Like what thread of the plot was your personal fave? The manipulating of the markets. And the... Yeah. Yeah, you would like that <clears throat> stuff. <laughs> well, wait, wait. For those of us who are not Thomases, tell us why you find that interesting. I'm just, you know, a sucker for a good market manipulation. <laughs> uh, no, I have a financial background that way, so it's yeah. interesting to see that people still do that. I mean, I did think it, it's, I did think the book effectively does kind of like show how the Count uses their, their greed and manipulates their greed in such a, in such a way as to, and the fact that he can use the, the, tel- the optic telegraph guy to, <laughs> to, to do that. It's, it's pretty, I mean, I think yeah. that kind of stuff. No, is I mean, he uses up. what they're like, you know, Dengler's is money. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. then Viafor's justice and like, his guilt probably yeah. from like all the stuff he you know didn't yeah that he let go just to like save his name right but like and or his you know son his missing son yeah. i think for me i wanted that was the storyline i was wanting to see happen is like this revelation of um benedetto or whatever benedetto, all, benedetto or all his names that came out yeah um, he how, did have a bunch of names how, how he was the son of um madame danglers and Viafor, right? And they had this. I I don't do French pronunciation, so I'm just gonna say the guy and the woman had a son, and they, and they thought he was dead because he apparently tried to kill the baby that, and bury the baby. It was a little. That was a bit much, right? Where it was like he. They thought that baby was dead, and like, but when we first hear the story, 
we think that he buries the baby alive. And then we find or out... Chichio is his servant. Yeah. That is actually the servant to this guy. I think it's coincidences. Like, all these things are it's like... It's like season two of Friday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> why, why are you scared to go to this house? Well, this house is where I lived when I saw this guy. And I was actually... Getting, I mean, there's all these, like, turns of events. But I wanted to see that storyline play out a little more. Okay. And so I kept turning... Like, that's what I was kept, kept But, like, because for. you enjoyed it or because you were, like... No, I wanted the justice on it. Yeah. So, like... I think for me a little bit of whatever the storylines are, I want to see these guys get justice, right? Sure. Like maybe you 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 want that satisfaction of mm-hmm. like he gets his revenge. These guys, well, he does does such a good job of like. Why well, don't want these guys to get away with it? These guys, <laughs> they're awful. They really yeah, have it coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just where I'm at now personally. And I'm like, get him, like <laughs> justice, the <laughs> consequences. But like, I uh, I find Tell that. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> Where could that be coming from? <laughs> like everywhere, all around me. I just find justice a little satisfying when people get it sometimes. Yeah, it's right? like the same reason I like to watch Law and Order SVU. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. So, so my favorite thread is the uh, the Shawshank section. Oh yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. Just the time in the prison, the whole mm-hmm. I get over my bitterness and I decide to educate myself and take advantage of this time and this the whole escape and that whole process and that changing and that portion of his life I'm always like how old is he at this point and yeah. I'm kind of doing how long did that take uh-huh. and uh, yeah it was like he was in prison for like 10 years no he's in prison for 14 years and then he's gone for 10 years and he doesn't come back that's the thing that I think is cool it's like he's away like plotting for 10 years he's that's intense in China yeah. for 10 years yeah um, yeah yeah so that's my favorite part Okay. Yeah, I actually agree with that because I I have figured out that I love origin stories. Like I think oh, a good yeah. origin story is so much fun. This does have like a superhero vibe. Yeah, it to totally it. does. Yeah. Which again I think is why a it's lot very of Batman persists, right? Like, <laughs> He's like unlimited resources fueled by this trauma. Like it does feel very <laughs> Batman. But yeah, so I think it's very interesting that you take a character who is otherwise like, you know, relatively innocent and you throw him into the situation in such an unjust way. And through it, he, you know, he goes through this horrific experience, but he befriends this person who educates him, who gives him something that he probably would never have gotten on the outside and access to this incredible fortune. He goes out and he does, you know, he, he does all this stuff with it, you know, for, I mean, like 20 years of his life, right, is spent like building this Long game. You know, building this persona, yeah. You're playing the long game. <laughs> and I think, like, that is just fascinating. Yeah. And the escape is really cool. Like, it's just a very cool... All the like, things he learns. ...that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that part is fascinating. And I think a lot of people really... You know, like, I think that's one of the things that really grabs you about it. Especially because it's all, like, right at the beginning. You know, yeah. all this is happening right up front. But I do love how he revisits it at the end. Like, when he goes back to the prison, and that's, like, one of the final things. He's, like, he's got his revenge, and he goes back to the prison, and he, you know, is the, things haven't changed that much. He pulls out the rope ladder. The guard's like, wait, how do you know? Like, this is crazy, right? But, like, you go back and you revisit his beginnings, his origin, and he just, like, reflects and disappears. But, I mean, that's, I, if you return back to it, that's an important part for him, right? You can mm-hmm. tell that's... He's coming back to where he... Well, you have to kind of... He has to have some sense of growth, right? Like... He essentially transforms into this, you know, well, not essentially, he does transform. He goes through this, like... And to an unrecognizable person. <laughs> right. Yeah. People think is a literal... I mean, 20, 20 years helps new. with that. Yeah. Katie's new. Uh, she when did I see people from high school, they have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but people thought he was a, a vampire. They're like, dude's a vampire. I think that he he did like physically transform in that sense. But he so he became like this this new person who was so focused on his concept of, of justice and revenge and 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 he is playing God in in the lives of these people. I mean, I know there are some. He thought he was doing God's will. He did. Oh, yeah. he called himself like so. Like the mo- probably the most famous quote from the book, and I, I saved it here. Let me pull it up. Of course, I was should. it Madame Dangler's whose beauty was still outstanding despite her thirty-six years? <laughs> we talked about that. <laughs> <it. laughs> yeah, no, I marked that one. And I was like, she's still pretty even though she's over thirty-six. <laughs> Wow. There's hope for all of us. Thank you. Wait and hope. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wait and hope. Um, uh, no. So this is after, so like he's he's escaped prison and he's found his treasure and he's kind of um, gone and like figured out, like confirmed what happened about the betrayal. And now he's gone back to his, his old boss, the guy who was the ship owner, who had done a lot to like help his father after he was arrested and to try and, and free him. And the, sh- the ship owner had, was going through hard times and he goes through this like miraculous, like saving him in this really like extravagant, miraculous way, like rebuilds the ship and like sails it like into the harbor and this like last minute thing before he dramatically commits suicide to protect his honor. I mean, it's very dramatic, right? So after this whole big scene, and he's done his good deed, he says, And now, said the man on the yacht, farewell to the kindness, humanity, and gratitude. Farewell, farewell to all sentiments that gladden the heart. I have substituted myself for providence in rewarding the good. May the God of vengeance now yield me his place to punish the wicked. He also said, right around then too, he said, God punishes the indifference of men who remain cold and proud before the terrible sp- it's a faded picture he presents to them I laugh like an avenging angel at the evil men to do one to another but now I myself have been bitten by the serpent I was watching like he's like ready to admit that maybe what he was doing wasn't really yeah he has to grow and yeah yeah I did his his worldview was um I mean it was earned. I didn't feel like it was earned. It was just so sad and so bleak, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's just like he knows these people are despicable, and he's using their their follies against them. I mean, their own their you know their own deeds are their undoing. He's not. He's he's again. He's acting as an agent of justice, as and he sees it as an agent of of God, and. But his view of them is certainly not, and he has this like almost omnipotent thing. He's been studying them for ten years. He knows what he knows every, every facet, which is what makes it so interesting when you go back and you have all these characters telling him like in this long drawn out expository way stuff that he already knows. <laughs> it's really frustrating. <laughs> but, um, but well, maybe you missed it the first time when you were trying to figure out how they related to this character, to this character, <laughs> to this character, because that is taking like. I mean, but there's something that's just kind of weirdly weird satisfying right where he's so he has all these like aliases right so he comes back as the Count of Monte Cristo but he also has this Lord Wilmore persona that does that he uses when he's doing good deeds and he, and the Sinbad the sailor and then he also has Abbe Busoni which he uses to like manipulate people to confess stuff to him that he pretends to be a priest and like all and he can these, buy a house for each of those personas yeah and live and, there. anyway so That's he has impressive. all these personas and like these characters are like well the Abbe Busoni told me this and he's like oh yeah okay right like he's just he's like so it's it's always interesting to hear how these, you know, all these intersecting 
Like, in some ways, yeah. Not in some ways. In many ways. It, it obviously stretches probability. There's way too many coincidences. But he has masterminded the whole thing in such a way. And as this, like, ca this character that he plays in all these different instances to kind of... To, to kind of line up the ducks, right? To make it, to make he it. He didn't line up all the ducks. Like some of those ducks were just coincidental. On a semi-unrelated note, did your research ever turn up an estimate of how much the fortune would have been worth in twenty twenty? <laughs> like how much money did he really, really have? have? <laughs> you know, I did not come across right. that. I'll just do a little digging here. Keep talking. <laughs> the worth. Like, um, like he goes and buys all these houses. Is he like? And he just like gave money. Well, and he like he can buy an island and buy a title, yeah. and he can buy yeah. all sorts is, of things. Is he LeBron James rich? Is he Jeff Bezos rich? I think he's Jeff Bezos rich. I think that's so. What you're supposed when to I Google this, there's some things. How rich is the Count of Monte Cristo? Just how rich is this guy? <laughs> What's it worth? Hold on, let me find a good source of it. I am all Sorry, I that's what we'd like to know. I mean, this is important stuff. I do think it's interesting, right? But that whole notion of like that he he is all knowing, he has unlimited resources. It does make him like this almost godlike figure. And the fact that I mean, the name really does come from that from the island. I don't think that Dumas was trying to paint like a Christ-like figure, but it is kind of interesting, right? He descends below and then rises above, has like this new rebirth, this new like resurrection as a new person. That's like this, you know, in in like casting judgment on people kind of a thing. Like I think there are some parallels to be drawn there for sure but um but again apparently he got the the idea from the island on like a cruise he was with with napoleon's nephew mm. and they were like hey look at that island in monte cristo and he's like i'm gonna write a story about that there were lots of um hey Marquet, we... hey who Marquet. oh mckay yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> um actually it was inspired by a true story did you know this there was, a, there was a guy. So it was a, a true story. So we, he got it from a, a story from a book compiled that was like um, a police archivist that had like pulled together all these like true, essentially like 19th century French true crime. <laughs> and, um, and they got the story of a man, Pierre Picot, I think that's how you say it, Picot, um, living in Nîmes and who was engaged to marry a rich woman when three jealous friends falsely accused him of being a spy for England. He was placed under a form of house arrest in Fenestrel Fort, where he served as a servant to a rich Italian cleric. And when the cleric died, he left his fortune to him, um, who he had treated as a son. And then this guy spent years plotting the revenge on the three men who were responsible for his misfortune. He stabbed the first with a dagger, on which was printed the words, number one. <laughs> and then he poisoned the second. Um, and then the third man's son lured into crime his daughter into prostitution, finally stabbing the man himself. So, quite the well, real. I, when I hear that, I hear a novel. Way more interesting than John Benet Rand. Was he as rich as the Count of Monte Cristo? Because I found out how rich oh. he is. Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. So, he mentions his worth as 80 million francs late in the book. Franks, how do you say it? Um, the French franc at that time was composed of about one one hundredth ounce of gold, so we can figure this out fairly easily. <laughs> um, he apparently had eight. He apparently had eight hundred thousand ounces of gold, and when this Reddit, because it's in Reddit, <laughs> was made, um, sounds about right. Yeah, gold was at one thousand three hundred eighty dollars an ounce, and so basically, uh, he he is a billionaire. He had one billion one hundred four million dollars. 
Okay, well, that's not quite Jeff Bezos rich, but that's pretty rich. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. You don't run out of money when you have a billion dollars. So they're like, yeah. think Tony Stark slash Warren Buffett slash Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. And if all you want to do with that money is just like... Get back at the people who wronged you. Great, do it. Yeah. Good for you. You know, it's making me think, though, when you talk about the true story, it would be interesting to do a survey of the books on the list of how many of them are based on true stories. You know, yeah. uh, the fiction, obviously. Yeah. Um, because, like, an American tragedy, right? Kind of yeah. a similar thing, right? They pulled, they pulled a, a true, true crime, crime story. Yeah, that's true. And, or a series of true crime stories yeah. and, made, and made a novel out of it. So, anyway. Yeah. Like Cloud Inspiration Atlas. That comes. one's based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that true story known as Cloud Atlas. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. I, I got I got a I got into a good American tragedy combo the other day. We were talking about um uh speaking of sorry, we're gonna go on a small true crime tangent that I'm sure I'll cut out, but oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> late. Uh, <laughs> so late. But there was never this... doing this in <laughs> No, that's fine. The tangents are fine. <laughs> um but no, it was the uh, so there's the new um, Netflix. Um, it's called American Murder, and which now I realize is a very similar title to American Tragedy. <laughs> anyway, about Chris and Shannon Watts or Shannon Watts, which I wasn't familiar with, but some people maybe were more familiar with. It was a uh, a man who uh, who's just like a completely like normal unexceptional like broy dude in Colorado who um started having an affair and then choked like strangled his wife and two beautiful daughters and it was horrifying That's horrible. and we're not leaving this to the podcast so I'm standing up <laughs> this is officially cut <laughs> anyway and so we were talking about that like um you know why do why do men just like kill their wives out that like their inconvenient or wives or girlfriends and she was pregnant too so yeah. sad anyway any insight yeah matt tell us tell us it makes me nervous i don't want to date <laughs> good luck why do men kill their wives yeah. matt? uh last chance <laughs> anyway we'll cut that out but I, I i i don't get a lot of chances to talk about american tragedy and it did come up it never yeah that one never comes up yeah, yeah. i hated that book so well <laughs> so did terrible. i i, I wanted too. to throw it across the train i did too it was mm-hmm. awful all right all right back back to business all right anything else we want to um to discuss like um do we feel like it's aged well in the sense, like, do we feel like it's reached, like, a mythic enough status that the fact that there are slaves and, like, uh, you know, yeah. just uh, the function. Yes. Yeah. I think it's aged well. I think it's aged like, well. Mm-hmm. Like, you like know, that didn't take, that revenge, didn't take you out of it. Cold revenge? I don't think that's going away. Yeah. Right? No. I mean, You're going to sh- bump on that stuff that's sure. from, the, from a relic of the time it was written, for sure. But I mean, was, there were slaves when it was written, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to be mm-hmm. like, how dare you mention slaves when there were slaves? So, like, I know, but he's like he's the hero of the book, and he's so casually being like, "This is my slave." And I mean, it, that's he freed more, her. He freed her, and it, she wasn't actually his slave. She, he was just telling people she was his slave. And, but he actually did have a slave, his quote Nubian, who he like barely ever called by his name, which made me uncomfortable. But anyway, so um, yeah, you didn't include him, the mute Nubian, the mute Ali, then his my Nubian. Oh. <laughs> like every time I heard the phrase "my Nubian," my skin would crawl a little bit. So, so no, but that I think you out of it. 
It did. Yeah. A little. But not enough to say, like, now I feel terrible. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that any of that took me out. Like, some of the things we've talked about before have not aged very well. Yeah. But this one, I think... I mean, because it's very much a period piece, right? With, like, very relevant themes and plot lines that we, you know, mm-hmm. deal with today. So I think it I think it holds up yeah. pretty well. All right. That's fair. Um, well, let's talk pop culture. Um, I was just saying it's a good transition to the movie. Yes. Because mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't does hold up well. Not hold up. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. I do think it's interesting, though. So when, so my experience, actually, so as far as the movie, so this movie, like, this has been adapted a bajillion times, like all classics, right? As, and especially, like I said, like, Dumas adapted it himself into a play. There are, there's a version of it on Prime from, like, 1975 that I maybe did watch. <laughs> <laughs> real bad don't waste your time <laughs> I've, I've done that service for you so there <laughs> so which brings us to the I 2000 didn't watch that though <laughs> I did watch it, yet. it so the, <laughs> the 2002 version so I when I saw that in high school I had not read the book and um I really liked it when I first saw it I was like this movie's dope right oh yeah no it was t- it was like kind of an instant it was like, totally classic fun. so unless you is, read the book and then you were like well that's what I was well, gonna say well so nope. then you get to the book and you're like so excited like anyway hold on so I'm gonna read this is what Roger Ebert um said about the movie when it came out so this is the kind of adventure picture the studios churned out in the golden age so traditional and all so traditional it almost feels new the various cliffs, fortresses, prisons, treasure isles, and chateaus all look suitably atmospheric. The fight scenes are well choreographed, and the moment of Mondego's comeuppance is nicely milk, for, milked for every ounce of sweet revenge. This is the kind of movie that used to be right at home at the Saturday matinee, and it still is. So, I don't know that it's still... You don't. They don't make movies like this anymore. You don't see movies that are just like... I don't know. Like, it, it feels like very... Did you you rewatch this movie too, right? Recently? Yes, I did. <laughs> and you, I'm thorough, I, okay. No, no, I mean, I just haven't seen it since 2002. Oh, but, ha- so, really? You haven't? No. <laughs> I did not need to revisit this one. Nope. Oh, interesting. Because like I watched it and I'm like, uh, it doesn't even come close to the book. And that's the thing. And I loved that book. I but, mean, I did like it. But, but I, I think that so I was disappointed. In the I think movie if you if you watch the if you and this is this is my it, this experience is kind of like the kernel of my book versus movie debate, right? If you are like, I can't see this movie until I read the book, you're selling yourself short, right? When I saw this movie, I was like, oh, this is great. This is a fun movie. And then I read the book. I'm like, and then I watched it and I was like, oh, well, this movie sucks. (laughs) Like, this is not that good of a movie compared to the source material, right? Whereas the other way around, whatever. I don't know that I still feel like the movie's all that great. I don't know that the movie really holds up. It's pretty cheesy. But, like... Was there a scene in the grass, like outside a house, with Mercedes yeah. and him? There's, yes. Uh, well, who is what it? I mean, there's a scene at the end where they're out in the grass. There's like some and, sword fighting. Mondeo are fighting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all that I have fresh in my head, and then I'm like, that's not what happened. Guys, like, Jim Caviezel is the worst actor <laughs> in the history of movies. If they had just cast somebody it's so with true. some charisma, He's with so something bad. like it could be like. A really cool movie. Yeah. It is unwatchable. It <laughs> well, we do have Henry Cavill as uh, Albert Mondego. He's a Mondego. child. He's barely in it. I know. Well, I know, but yeah. it is one of the early appearances of yeah. Henry Cavill. Who would you I, cast? 
I don't know. I was thinking about we, we need a good adaptation that's a really actual good adaptation of the book that conveys its complexity cast. a little more. Like a good TV, like a good HBO ten episode. He has like, to be older. It would be a like Guy Pierce in the moment, like was like, sure. he's in some stuff. I'm a I'm a memento guy. Like yeah. this is cool, but that doesn't hold up very well either. Like he doesn't really make like this is poorly cast all around. Mercedes, no. Yeah. no. She's so, in succession now, so there you well, go. I See, I actually <laughs> liked the movie, I and I have not had a problem with it I since. I do I think, think if that, you see the movie before you read the book, it holds up better. Well, and I or I think it's one of those movies where you just have to separate it, right? Yeah. Like you just have to count it as an entirely separate entity and not, you know. But I think that you have to do that always. Well, yes, but but some movies are better adaptations. Sure, but um, I think they're different mediums, right? They like, are. Like they're gonna do, and I think what this this movie tried to do is like make it an action movie, right? Yeah. Like there's all these sword fights. Like when he gets arrested, he like jumps on a horse and like rides off, and there's like a chase that does not happen in the book. The book, you know, like it's it's Who's trying to cast. I'm still thinking of this. And I apologize, Jim, if you are listening. <laughs> Jim like, is a noted this. fan. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure that there were some other good Jim. So the age that range, what's the age range we're looking at? So he's he's supposed to be like in his early 40s. Okay. So pulling off pulling off 35. Okay. All right. Okay. So like Matt Damon? No. No, I don't think. I think it'd be hard to cast. Matt Damon. Matt Damon did like I, I see like a talented Mr. Ripley thing. He could pull off like the different. I don't know. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody but Jim Caviezel. Like, oh my gosh! <laughs> in the book, you're like this guy has personality, and in the movie, he does not. I also think you should cast a different person to play young Edmond because he literally becomes a different person. So I don't think it. It's like The Crown, right? You get like different actors to play the younger versions, and there you do kind of. I like the idea of like that you're like a different person as you age and whatever. So. FYI, Matt Damon is 50 years old. I just want to point put that out there. I think I read that, Mitch, which is maybe why. It, I mean, what about like a, What about like a Leo? <laughs> I didn't say it was old. <laughs> well, but if we're talking about someone in their early 40s yeah. who's supposed to be playing 35, yeah. he is not that age. What about like a Leo DiCaprio? Yeah, I, could, I, I mean, we've got like the Great Gatsby. But he's got like the Great Gatsby vibe, yeah. right? Like he could kind of pull that off. I, I'm picturing... Can you imagine like a Scorsese version? <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like if you put it in the hands of a really good director and a, and a charismatic actor... It'd be that great. That movie really High could budget. be awesome. I do think it does need to be a 10-episode series, though. Right? Yeah. Probably a better Netflix series. There's, yeah. there's a lot going on here. I think, yeah, I think it would be hey, a Netflix, better... make this a series. Let's I know. But, like, but don't, don't make it like a Christmas Carol. Remember? Oh, was yeah, it the yeah, Christmas yeah. Carol? With Guy Pierce, yeah. yeah. With Guy Pierce. That was The FX. one that just came out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The FX one that was like... So. Horrific! Don't go there. Like, just try to stay <laughs> like, true to the story. Make it sexy, yeah. yeah. I mean, just try to, to stay true to the story. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's tricky. Like, none of the adaptations that I've seen <laughs> stay true to the story. John David Washington. Hey, heck yeah! JD, I would love it. I. You know, I actually read that they. There is someone that is maybe, and this was like a few months. Who knows? Like pandemic and COVID and whatever, right? But like, because Dumas was biracial or like his father was biracial so like they and and supposedly again we're going to get into this in a second but like it was partially like based on his father's experience um and and so the idea of like having a black Sterling K. Brown oh yeah I'd do that yeah Idris Elba 
Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we've just upgraded the movie significantly. <laughs> I agree. Call us now. We've also got like Chris Pratt, Christian Bale. I'm looking oh, at actors who are 40. The Chris. Right? The Chris's. Um, the Chris's. Ashton the Chris's. Kutcher. I feel like Chris Pine. Oh, I, Jude Law. Mm. Be a good comeback for Jude. But. Yeah. I still just have Benedict his Cumberbatch. in my head and I can't. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm, I'm not sure. No. <laughs> I think he solved um, it. Orlando Bloom. So okay, I think Idris Elba is our. I think Idris Elba. Yeah, I think I think we've got consensus. Give us, we'll get this financed. So we'll yeah. we'll let you guys know how it's going. Yeah. Um, but about so um, what I was just mentioned, his father. So are you guys familiar with the book, The Black Count? I'm not. No. Sorry. So this um, is a biography of his father, also named Alexander Dumas. Of Dumas' father, I should say. Um, this book, The Black Count, won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 2013. And it's supposed to be, like, super, super, super good, right? Like, and he just has this fascinating life there. Um, so this is from a small little write-up about it. So Dumas' father was also named Alexander Dumas, but we'll call him Alex here, which was his preferred nickname. <laughs> um, it says... As chronicled in Tom Reese's excellent The Black Count, Alex was born in 1762 in what is now Haiti, the son of a white French count and a black enslaved woman. The French Empire offered legal protections to mixed-race people at that time, so at the age of 14, Alex made his way to France and enlisted in the army. Charismatic and principled, he shot up through the ranks as the revolution caught fire. While the revolutionary army would become infamous for its excesses, Alex remained steadfast in his nobility. He briefly fell under suspicion by the Committee of Public Safety for being too lenient in his treatment of the enemy. And when he put down a peasant resistance in Vendée, he forbade his men to plunder the village. Still, Alex won battle after battle and terrified his enemies. When he fought against the Austrians, they called him the Black Devil. Uh, he served as a general. I know. <laughs> as he, he served, a, he served as a general alongside Napoleon. And as Napoleon began to consolidate power on his way to becoming emperor, Alex continued to serve him. But he made Napoleon nervous. Uh, he was more <laughs> handsome and charismatic. And he Little was, man syndrome. Yep. <laughs> and he was truly devoted to the idea of the republic. After they quarreled during the French invasion of Egypt in 1798, Napoleon decided to take drastic measures. In 1799, Alex was taken prisoner of war in Naples. Rather than negotiate for the release of a valuable member of the military, Napoleon left him there to rot. And um, he, he did eventually get released, but like he died when... Um, Dumas, when Alexander Dumas was only four years old, and like they say that like this book was kind of written almost as like a revenge fantasy for his father. Anyway, this book is supposed to be like super fascinating and obviously really well done. Apparently, um, add it to your list. Yeah, the Black Count. So it says um, that there had been a, a statue of him up in France because okay, he was like a big, larger than life kind of figure. So centuries later, when the Nazis occupied France, they destroyed the one remaining statue of him in Paris because it be- depicted a man of mixed race heritage. I mean... Oh, that's sad. I know. So, thumbs down for the Nazis. Anyway. Another thumbs down. Yeah, another thumbs down there. So, um, one other thing, pop culture thing to note. Uh, Edmond Dantes is the, or Edmond Dantes, however you want to say it, is the pseudonym of John Hughes. <laughs> yes, the beloved American screenwriter. So, you probably know John Hughes for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is one of Matt's favorite movies, or... Your very favorite movie? Who knows? Not one of. The. Stands alone. <laughs> the number <laughs> one. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> well, Edmund now, Dante. and now you can add the fact that his pen name was. Yeah, Edmund Dantes. Edmund Dantes. And, but he only used it. You knew that? <laughs> yeah. He only used it for scripts he was embarrassed about, including 
Beethoven. <laughs> Should be embarrassed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Made in Manhattan. Should also be embarrassed. Yes. Not better great. Than, better than Beethoven. But, <laughs> but yes. still. And Drillbit Taylor. <laughs> I never saw a drill. Before. I didn't do that. But the name makes it it's embarrassing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of it's a kind of a clever pen name considering that like he has so many different aliases in the book, right? So I like that. Anyway. I mean, it is if you're gonna pick a character, he's a good one to pick. Yeah. He's got some street cred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that he he was cool with like Home Alone 2, um, getting his that his his real name, but you know. That one made him, made him some money, so no. you know. <laughs> yeah. I want the money going not to Edmund Any- Dante. He's a billionaire. So. That's the Trump one, right? <laughs> yeah, that is the Trump. <laughs> All right, so on to our favorite segment. What are we inspired to do now that you've finished reading The Count of Monte Cristo? Aaron? Well, I would like to read the full unabridged version at some point. Really? Because After all of this? Yes, I, I, yes, because I think it's just one of those things where, like, you're if, if you're just, yeah, like I think you're there's right. val- because I also think it's an interesting timepiece, right? Like the idea that he wrote it in this like serial fashion. And I think there's, I think there is still value to that. Well, call so, me when you get to the chapter on the hashish, okay? Um, okay. <laughs> that's, that's that's I was saying to somebody earlier um, that I have a student, seventh grader, whose mom, I saw the book sitting on his desk, unabridged. And I'm like, oh, you're going to read that? He's like, my mom told me I had to, so then I don't have to find a book for two months. <laughs> so this is someone who reads a lot, and his mom does not want to keep looking for books for him. <laughs> so read this bad boy. Oh, gosh. Yeah, but I, so I do. At some point, I would like to say that I have read the full unabridged version. Uh, that may not be something I do tomorrow, but at some point, I would like in to. In all your spare time. In <laughs> all my all spare time. reading books yes. coming yes. our way. And now, actually, I really want to read The Black Count, so I think mm-hmm. I, I want to add that to the list. Yeah, mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, fun fact, I didn't mention this before, so, well, because I don't know that we're going to get to hashish again, unless this inspired any of you to try some... <laughs> Is that what inspired you to do? Drugs? <laughs> Got a lot of time on our hands. Uh, <laughs> he was apparently the member of something called the Club des Hashishin, or I can't. I, in English, the Club of Hashish Eaters, which was a Parisian group dedicated to the exploration of drug-induced experiences, notably with hashish, which is just hash, which is a form of cannabis. Members included Victor Hugo, Alexander Dumas, Honor de Balzac, Charles Baudelaire, and like just a bunch of like French novelists that like to get together and... So yeah, we hi. have like the Algonquin round table. For yeah. Well, and then we have the, the club that Yates was part of, right? Yeah. Yates and Dickens. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that. So maybe that, it's like, paranormal you like one. a literary club where you do something yeah. cool like drugs or... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I do like the French novelist ones where they get high. That sounds that sounds. Apparently our budding authors out there need to go find themselves in some sort of... You have to find her then, yeah. I guess. Find yeah. your space. Um, all right, Liz, what about you? Mm, so I guess like... I would say that, like, the wait and hope ending. Yeah. Like, we're in a kind of a trying time, right? Like, wait and hope. Like, persevere. We can get through this. Go team. Go team. Yeah. Right? Maybe that's, like, the state of my existence right now, but I'm like, okay, soon it'll be better, right? (laughs) Wait and hope. Wait and hope. So, do you want to read to us the actual... It says wait and hope. There's okay, I'll read it to you. <laughs> it just says wait and hope. Wow, Liz, that really conveys the power of it. I well mean, done. Here's the funny story. Yeah. Actually, it, the fact that it like really does end. He's wordy, 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 paid by the line, paid by the line. I use all these words. And then like just to wrap it all up with like, I mean, most authors don't kind of spell it out for you in such a succinct way at the end of the book, right? Here's the lesson I learned. Yeah. Here it is. I mean, 
I'll take it when they just give it to me right away. But he says, live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God deigns to reveal the future to man, the sum of all human wisdom will be contained in these two words, wait and hope. So if that's all you get out of the book, that's pretty cool. That's a good passage. It's a good thing to get out of it. That's what inspired me. I mean, I was inspired by that. And probably a more inspirational thing than joining a club of whatever to get to deal deal with your loneliness. (laughs) Well, maybe that's part of waiting and hoping. (laughs) Whatever it takes to get you through. I I don't want to pour water on yours. Pour water. I I don't agree with the sentiment that that's like the sum of all human wisdom is wait and hope. But I do think wait and hope is a good advice. (laughs) But to sum it up and be like... This is what it's all about. Well, I didn't say it was dumb. Well, I know you didn't, but just he Demosted. said that. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. But I agree with you, and that was going to be my shoot takeaway. Was you know <laughs> that there is power in that in today's world. So now I'll just go with my plan B, which is befriend an old secret billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> be in the right place at the right time. But are you willing to go to prison unjustly for it? Not really. I'd rather do it the fast way. (laughs) Or don't cross it to us because now we know how to do like revenge in a long way. It's not like... I mean, these are creative punishments. If I had had mental energy to put into that, I would. Just apply that to Uh just basic pranking and just take it down three notches. But you get some good ideas. (laughs) Yeah, your average toilet paper, which you shouldn't do anymore. Real thing. Yes, yes. Um, you guys, I don't know. I just, I, I think I got a little too deep in the research. <laughs> what? <laughs> to be really inspired. Sarah, did you really finish the book? <laughs> I've already read it three times. <laughs> of course I didn't finish. <laughs> so, like, my theory is that the research was good. You did bang up research. But, like, you're like, oh, I, I don't really feel like reading this right now. <laughs> I'm going to watch the movie. <laughs> Like, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm well versed to like how people procrastinate. I read. I, I, <laughs> I read. Yeah, Liz. I read. I read. T- I read a good two thirds of it. I'd say. I think that counts. It totally counts. I'm just saying. You're like, go ahead. A <laughs> um. All right. Well, that's funny. You guys. Good times. All right, listeners. Have you read The Count of Monte Cristo? What do you think? Do you have an opinion, abridged, unabridged? What do you think? Please join the conversation. Um, Join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Reading with Rory, or find us on our website at readingwithrory.com. You can also follow us on Spotify for playlists inspired by the books we read. This will probably just include a lot of French pop songs, which is what I've been listening to um, to get to get us amped up for or this the conversation. Soundtrack. Yeah, I was gonna say the soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> There's just like no, it's silent while they're sort of fighting. generic movie score. I will we'll skip that. All right, don't forget also to leave us a review. We love to hear how we're doing. Um, love to hear, find new listeners and reviews help us do well. So. We're so next time on Reading with Rory, we'll be discussing The Country Girls by Edna O'Brien, um, which should be fun. We cannot wait. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening. And Matt, thank you for joining us. Yay! Yay! Thank this you, Matt. This is so fun. Family affair. Thank, um, thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. Peace out.